It's Brian Preston, the money guy. Restoring order to your financial chaos. Retirement, investing, taxes. You've got financial questions, he's got financial answers. It's Brian Preston, the money guy. Wow, what a difference a week can make. Can you guys believe what happened last week? It was one of those interesting times that I can remember that um, I was sitting in uh, one of our office mates here owns a business and he's also a client and we were in there just talking with him Bo and myself and I looked up at the TV screen and saw that the Dow Jones was down close to 700 points and I think I pretty much went pasty white and said guys I've got to go back to the office and figure out what's going on. Um, Bo you were there it was kind of a crazy crazy feeling when um, the market did what it did last week. It didn't seem real it seemed like we you know it was like watching a horror movie or something it didn't um, I don't know it just didn't seem like that was really happening because we we walked out of our office and it was a you know it was a bad day down 200 300 points but then we look up at the TV and it's down 600 700 800 well that kind of that in a letter i received from Wells Fargo this week has kind of been the the motivation for doing this week's show let me go ahead and back up and tell you this is the money guy show i'm your host Brian Preston along with my trusted associate Bo Hansen if you want to go check out our show notes you can go to money guy.com. You can also email the show directly if you want to give us some input on how we can better improve the show. You can check us out at um, Brian, B-R-I-A-N, at money-guy.com. We'd love to have your input. Also, we're going to be talking about some previous shows because it all interrelates with everything that's going on out there in the, the financial world these days with some shows we did back at the beginning part of 2009 as well as the mid part of 2009. I'm going to share that with you. If you want to go back and check out those shows, you can register on the website for a free membership. That's right, a completely free membership. You just give us our email, your email address, and that way we can do blast emails to you whenever we do new content, but also it allows you to have access to more of the archives. You can do that on the website, but you can also sign up for a premium membership if you want to get all of our archives going all the way back to when we first started doing the podcast, which, by the way, we're starting to get a, quite a bit of length under our years, so we're getting long in the tooth here. We're, we've been doing this over five, close to five years right now, so it's pretty interesting, which in podcast years makes us about 93, I think. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I do want to kind of tell you guys, if any of you guys are listening, you're NAPFA members. I'm hoping I'll see you guys next week. We are um, speaking at the Nat- NAPFA National Conference up in Chicago next week. So if you are a NAPFA member and you listen to the podcast, shoot me over an email. Maybe we can um, catch up at some point, even break bread at um, at, at the conference or something like that. I'm, I'm taking Bo as well. It's going to be his first NAPFA conference. Um, for those of you guys wondering what's NAPFA, that's the fee-only organization, the National Association of, Na- National Association of Personal Financial Advisors. We're the fee-only guys, meaning that the no commitment or anything else like that, and we have our national conference next week. So I feel very honored that they've asked me to speak. But I do want to kind of jump in and talk about all these things that are going on. First, the, the, all that happened last week, it seemed like you, you hear a lot of people in the media now describing this as the perfect storm. We had the whole concern over Greece's debt. You also had just the uncertainty of the markets. And then they originally called it a fat finger trade, which um, you know means somebody mixed up billions for millions uh, or something like that with originally they talked about a Procter and Gamble trade and then then I heard another one talk about a hedge fund manager out in California placed a bunch of put orders or you know did some options contracts on on the market in general there's been all kind of theories and I will tell you my thought is 
it definitely was not a fat finger trade. The first reason is, is that the only thing I know that you can trade in dollar amounts is pretty much mutual funds, unit investment trusts, and things like that. Whenever you're dealing with contracts as well, or stocks, you're dealing with share amounts. So there's not some magical billions or millions button. You, you can't put dollar amounts with those type of trades. So I'm not so sure that the government or the, the, the officials know exactly what happened, or if they do, they're not completely telling. I think there's a little bit of nervousness. They don't want to add fear to the marketplace. I mean, there's all kind of things that, that could have happened. I mean, it, it just seems very suspicious to me that they can't track down what the cause is, because it's pretty easy to go see where you have excessive volume in certain areas that you should be able to track it down. But they're saying they can't. They haven't been able to completely track that down. So the conspiracy theorist in me wonders, what are they not telling us? But um, here nor there, it's one of those things where it was scary. And part of that fear is you've got to think about your own personal finances. Because remember, that's the whole purpose of the show here is that we try to go beyond common sense, help you out on making the right financial decisions for your household. And, and part of that, part of the motivation was is that I got a letter from Wells Fargo, and it tied directly into what's going on out there in the financial markets because a lot of the uncertainty, whether it's all these fat finger trades or computer glitches or just grease, there's a lot of uncertainty, and part of it is from the people looking at grease. A lot of the world is looking at the grease and the pigs, and I'll explain what the pigs are in a minute if you haven't heard that terminology yet. But a lot of people are looking at the debt of the governments and going, wow, that's kind of scary. They've, they've got so much debt that, that they're having to make big changes. And you got rioting in the streets, and, and it's a scary thing. And I think where the uncertainty comes in here to America is that we look at Greece and we say, could that happen here? And I've got some articles that kind of go into that, but then I even have my own personal story where I told you guys my life has been shifting. My thought on debt has been evolving. Now, I'm not Dave Ramsey yet, where I completely believe you should wipe out all debt and never use debt. I'm not completely Dave yet. By the way, not a, not not dissing Dave. I, I'm a big fan. I think Dave does an incredible job at what he does. But um, I am not a, um, a complete wipe out all debt. But I have shaped my way of looking at debt. And one of the things I've had to change, and I'm kind of setting the table for you because of this letter I received from Wells Fargo, is fortunately... I have already changed my behavior before I got this letter from Wells Fargo. But uh, Bo picked on me because when he first started working here and getting involved with the podcast, I did have the belief I had one of these houses where I had tremendous equity. I had lots of equity in my house because I was in a part of the country where I bought a house back in 2004 and it ballooned in value. I, I had the one of the more inexpensive houses on my street, but it was a nice street. So my house kind of ballooned in value and went up significantly. And because of that, I was offered lines of credits and everything else, just like everybody else in America was. Well, I was using, and it seemed like, you know, from as far as I knew, that debt was very powerful to me is that even though I, if I, even if I didn't use it, I had access to large sums of money. And I, could, I looked at those large sums of money that were available to me as a replacement for emergency reserves because I, I was thinking to myself, if I ever got in an emergency or got myself where I found an investment opportunity or something, no big deal. I could go pull off of that home equity line and get access. And I think that was completely reasonable at the time to look at that because by having that belief, I was able to maximize what I was able to put into retirement savings. I could go and take every dime I made to either you know pay off any 
you know, I, I pay off the credit card month to month, don't carry any car loans, automobile loans. So the only debt I really had was my house. And instead of paying that down or building up an emergency reserves with, with very low interest rates on savings, I would go for the tax benefit of loading up my retirement plans um, to the point that, you know, I'm trying to get close to 20% of my wages into um, retirement plans of all types. I have different, since I have multiple companies as well as work on the Board of Education, I had multiple avenues for saving for retirement. Well, Bo comes on the scene and he said, you know, and he even had, he says, you know, you, Brian, I think you need to have actual physical cash. And we had qu quite a number of debates on that. Bo, do you want to put, give any input on, the, on that debate that we, you know, you and I have had that discussion no, quite yeah, a bit. No, yeah, I was right and you were wrong. And that's, um, <laughs> that's the way that's the Well, way and I guess there out. is some truth in that. And that's a humbling thing to say. But there is some truth in that because I recognized through you guys, a lot of you out there, the Money Guy listeners, it sent me emails telling me about, hey, your your mortgage companies have started sending you letters. And this is going back, I mean, I'm, I'm saying two years ago is when we first started getting the emails from you guys saying, hey, my, my bank is now cutting off my access to my line of credit. Um, it got to the point where I quickly realized Bo's right. You know, there you do. Gosh, <laughs> that sounds don't, so don't, sweet. Don't don't remember. Don't don't put that in your memory <laughs> banks too much. But I do need to have liquid cash. You've got to have cash on hand because you can't just because you have this phantom um, equity that supposedly you had. Where I really do think I could have sold my house for the part price that they said at one point in time, but. We've quickly realized with the downfall of real estate in the current market that that equity, unless it's in hand, in pocket, is probably gone. At least down here in South Atlanta, it sure is. Um, and so I got a letter from Wells Fargo last week. And let me read this letter to you. I think that's probably the best way. I'm not going to read it all, but I think it's kind of funny because Bo and I were making some jokes about it yesterday because they, you know, it's, it's that typical corporate speak, you know, how much they love you as a relationship. They, they tell you that you're very important to them, but then they, um, drop the bomb on you. Well, the same token, after they tell you how much they appreciate your relationship, they tell you you're pretty much your house is a POS or something to that degree, you know? So it says, dear, and it's got me and my wife's name. It says, dear Mr. Preston, you value your home investment. Okay. Wells Fargo Bank, it values your relationship. Well, that's sweet. <laughs> and it's, by the way, that's all bold-faced. So you value your home investment and Wells Fargo values your relationship. It's all very obviously bold-faced, so that's very important. We understand, now this is not boldface. We understand that a changing economy can affect your financial situation. Wow. You also know it is important to you. We also know it's important to you to use your home equity account, in parentheses, your account, wisely and to maintain your home ownership. That is why, once again, boldface, that is why we regularly review, now it takes off the boldface, our home equity, customers, credit performance, and property values. Now, I know my credit hasn't gotten bad, so I wonder what they're talking Oh, they must be talking about property values. So it goes on, it says, based on our review, we may lower the credit limit or restrict use of your account further according to your home equity line of credit agreement. If the value of the property securing the account significantly declines, Wells Fargo may lower the credit limit on your account. So here comes some big boldface stuff. As a result of our recent review, effective immediately, that's not today, that's not tomorrow, that was effective immediately whenever they did this letter, the credit limit of the account has been lowered to, and then it tells how much they lowered, and I'll tell you what that was actually in a minute, due to a substantial decline in the value of the property securing the account. 
If you have available credit, you may continue to access your account, but you may not exceed the new limit. If you owe a balance on your account, your monthly payments should continue to be made in a timely manner. Any automatic payments will continue to be deducted each month from your deposit account. Uh, and then it goes on and says, you may request a reinstatement of your account to its original terms if you think our decision is an error. And it gives a 1-800 number. So the way this went down is I actually was, you know, paying bills. You know, looked at my accounts because what, what I'll tell you, I'm just like you guys. We are no different. Is it that I have changed my philosophy? I've been saving cash, but also as I get my quarterly draws from some of my corporations, I've been paying down debt rapidly because I'm like you guys. I want to have everything tied down as much as possible. And I, and I have a personal belief, and I'm going to get into some rules of thumbs in a minute, but I have a personal belief if I'm saving 20% or more for retirement building the cash reserves for myself. If I have extra money, I want to pay down some debt with that. So I was like, well, the only debt I really have is my, my house. So I, I had put together a pretty aggressive debt repayment plan where I was paying down a pretty good chunk every quarter um, from my quarterly distributions from my companies. And so I, I'm in there paying bills and I, and I look, you know, checking account looks fine. Money market account looks fine. Um, and then I look down there at the home equity line and, and I see my balance is what I think it should be, but access is down to $2,500. And I'm like, well, I can't be right. I just made a big payment to, to it, you know, a, a large sum of money to pay it down. So why is it saying I only have access to $2,500? So I get on the phone and I call Wachovia and this is, I mean, well, I say Wachovia, Wells Fargo, remember what Wells Fargo bought Wachovia. Um, I call Wells Fargo and the nice woman who answers the phone, I say, look, you know, I'm noticing that my, a big chunk of my credit limit is gone. What happened here? And she goes, oh, we ran a review on your account yesterday. I, I caught it the day after. And she goes, yesterday we recognized that your house has gone down approximately $200,000 from the time we gave you your home equity line. And I was like, wow, can you please call the tax assessor? I really told her that. I said, can you please call the tax assessor and let them know that my house is $200,000 less than, than when it was when we did it. So because of that, she says, we have frozen your account to where we only get, we, we gave you $2,500 above and beyond whatever you currently owe on your account. And we're still underwater. And I said, well, wait a minute. I said, how often can y'all do these reviews? Because I said, my plan is to send y'all a big chunk of money every quarter as my companies pay me distributions. And she goes, well, I don't know if you want to do that anymore. She goes, she basically told me not to do that because you know, I might need that money for some other cause. So um, I am no longer paying Wells Fargo that big chunk quarterly. I am paying them a monthly amount now just to pay it down on a systematic basis. But there's, I'd rather have that money in savings. And so instead, we're going to be using that to even, you know, bolster up the, the cash reserves. And I started thinking, you know, this was okay. I wasn't caught off guard or it wasn't a catastrophic, catastrophic moment for me because Bo and I had had these discussions once before and I changed my lifestyle. I'd already building an emergency reserves outside of this, quit using the home equity line as a, as a piggy bank to use to those type of things. And I was fortunate that I already pre-planned. But I got to tell you, this all plays directly into what I think is going on in the world right now. And I kind of hit on that with, um, I did a podcast back on June 12th of 2009 called The Legacy of a Generation, Not the Millionaire Next Door. And I talked about how we've really had a change 
in the way America has lived and, and the way we're viewed around the world. And, and I, I, I remember when I did this podcast back in June, and we got a ton of comments on it when we did it, was I was trying to figure out how America got in the situation it is. And I didn't even go take, expand this out to Europe or any other parts of the, the world, but um, I really kind of, it, it came back to, I made the analogy of our lifestyle of the United States and then how that compares to, you know, gener- the, the millionaire next door. Uh, you know, and I, I, I talked about how the millionaire, millionaire next door, uh, the, the book by Professor, I mean, Dr. Thomas Stanley, um, that he made the, the, the statement that 80% of millionaires are new wealth, meaning they're first generation. So when you hear that and you hear all these millionaires, you go, where does the money go? And the, and the truth is, is that the second and third generation blow through the money. And I look at our country, and we kind of have that legacy where we had the Depression era where the, the people of our, the United States were living well below their means, but because they, they lived such a life of sacrifice, I felt like they kind of pushed that they wanted their children to have a better life. And we're all guilty. If you have children, you know what I'm talking about, is you have that feeling that you want your children not to go through the pains that you might have had. If it feels emotional pain, you try to you know overcompensate in some you know some areas there with your children. If it was financial pain, if you felt like that you were the kid that had to wear socks to school with holes in the feet, you know you don't want your kids to go to school with with holes in their socks. So that that's kind of a natural orderly thing about things. But there there's been a consequence, and I remember in my show notes I wrote. That So what's the traits? Because I talked about, I said, the de- Depression-era generation. I'm going to bring this all to fold, so if you can just hang in there with me. I said the Depression-era generation, was, what was some of their common characteristics? I said they lived well below their means, and they wanted their children to have a better life. But what did the better life mean? Well, it said for most of them, this is what we wrote back in our show notes, for most of them it meant they wanted their children to live in fine homes and have a lifestyle of consumption. However, while working hard and saving and trying to make the world better for the next generation, that younger generation, the baby boomers, forgot or neglected to remember the elements that were the very foundation of what their parents built, which is the United States. These baby boomers came to a point where they were wanted to reject the lifestyle of thrift that they had grown up in and were no longer willing to subject themselves to self-imposed environment of scarcity. And that's so important, is living below your means. And most baby boomers lived lives with high levels of consumption, where they were under accumulators of wealth, and they subscribed to a head-in-the-sand policies. We see that with our politicians now. And have somehow developed this idea of leaving the next generation to pick up the pieces. And I, I look back at what I wrote back in June, and that feels so relevant to what's going on right now. It, it really does. I mean, because I think a lot of the uncertainty in what's going on in the marketplace here in the United States with the stock market is, you know, that we're worried that could this happen to America? Because, you know, I've talked to you guys about Social Security, how it was supposed to have started paying out more benefits than was taken in in 2016, but because of the down economy that's already occurring, we're, you know, we're keeping these debt ratios, very the interest rates very low, and we know at some point interest and inflation is going to come back, and you start wondering, can we pay for the debt and the obligations we've created? Now, and I want you, please know, and that's I made the statement when I was doing that legacy generation analysis, is that this is not a Republican, Democrat, President Obama, President Bush type discussion. I start realizing that the politics... Is smoke. It really is. It's, this is not a conservative, liberal. They're all kind of one and the same in that. It's more of a lifestyle decision. 
is that, you know, we have gotten addicted to debt. And just like I talked about how I've changed my lifestyle, and this is where I kind of bring it full circle, I changed my lifestyle with my my use of my home equity loan where I realized this was an effective tool in the past. But this tool is, is no longer works because of what was going on with the value of my home. And, and the asset was no longer there. It's kind of the same correlation can be made with is that our reliance on debt as governments, as, as a nation, and as a world is kind of unhealthy. We, we've lived these, these lifestyles of consumption that now the time has come to pay the bill. And, and, and we're all having a lot of time, hard time struggling with these decisions. And I want to tell you some things that I don't think you're probably picking up on the nightly news. Um, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal put out by Jason, Jason Zwig. Did I say that right, Bo? You think that's right? Zwig, yeah, it, I think that's right. When the, it, this came out on May 10th, so this was only a few days ago. It says, when the global debt shuffle hits home. And these are some stats I had not heard, so I want to share these with you. It says, overall, U.S. government debt now stands at 92.6% of projected 2010 gross domestic product, GDP, meaning the, va- the wealth and value of the United States of America. Um, that's GDP. So we're at 92.6% of this year's GDP. So you hear that and you go, well, what does that mean? What, how does that relate? Well, this is the part that kind of shook me a little bit. It's because it says the U.S. now has a heavier debt burden than several of the over-leveraged countries that have been branded with the scornful nickname the pigs. Now, who are the pigs? The pigs are Portugal. We have um, Ireland, Italy, Greece, and Spain. That's that's that acronym of pigs is is where they come up. It's P I I G S. So P- Portugal, Ireland, Italy, Greece, and Spain. And Portugal is at eighty five point nine percent. So they're actually a little less. Their GDP debt is a little less than ours, but they're, yet they're still grouped in with this the danger section. Um, we also have Ireland, which is at 78.8% of their GDP in, in, in debt. And once again, we're at 92.6, so we're above them. Italy now, Italy is not too far from where Greece is. Italy's at 118.6% of their nation's um, GDP. And then Greece, the one that made the news last week with the rioting and everything else that's going on, is at 124.1%. So they are the biggest. And then the last is Spain. They're at 66.9%. So you start looking at this, but you know, and I say, well, you know, and this article addresses it very well because you go, well, wait a minute. I know I'm deleveraging myself. I'm paying off debt as fast as possible. I don't carry credit card debt. I don't have any car loans. I know Bo is, you know, debt free on car loans. You pay off your credit cards monthly. All, all you have is a mortgage as well, which is pretty incredible at your age to be that ahead of the curve. But I think a lot of you guys listening are probably the same way. You've been deleveraging. And I think as a country, we believed we were to a degree. And I think it is occurring on the consumer as well as on the business side. But it's not on the government, and the proof is in the numbers. It said total consumer debt, according to the Federal Reserve, has dropped by $160 billion since the third quarter of 2008. So a lot of you are doing exactly what I'm doing. You're trying to get out of debt yourself um, very aggressively. And it says while total business debt is down by more than $150 billion, and banks and other financial institutions owe $1.4 trillion less than they did in late 2008. But check out the, the separation from what we've done as consumers and businesses to what where the government is now. Now, I'm going to go ahead, 
throw in this disclaimer because I know I'm going to get the emails from you guys going, wait a minute, Brian. Remember, stimulus, the government needs to keep spending for stimulus. I understand that. But there are limits on how effective government spending is on stimulus. It's much more effective if you look at the economic research out there in the private sector. And I'm not getting into a, a whole policy debate. I don't. I, I want to focus on debt. Uh, it's really so. Please don't lose sight of the message of this whole podcast just because you hear me talk about government reductions and other things like that, and you start talking about stimulus. I mean. I don't want to go down that road. I really don't. And I don't want this to turn into a political discussion, too, because I think that a lot of the talk radio show hosts are putting a lot of all of this at the feet of President Obama, but I think it's more of the same. I mean, President Bush was a disaster when it came to, to being fiscally, with an F, responsible with the government. Um, and I think it, the, the, what's, what's happened is, is that you have more of the same. You have, it doesn't matter, Republican, Democrat, or whoever is in office. They, they, it's the good old boys, good old girls club, where they're kind of going the same way about things. Is that, hey, who needs to worry about tomorrow? Or, you know, when we get, we, this is something that the next generation or the next group of elected officials deal with. We just need to worry about ourselves. And so I think it's a little unfair to just say this is the Democrats and President Obama. I think that's, that's wrong. That's, that's playing partisanship. I think this is more of a government, uh, let's just say it, it's a politician problem. It doesn't matter, Republican, Democrat, they all are guilty. They are all part of the same group of people that have made these disastrous mistakes that now we, we, somebody needs to wake up, get some cold water thrown on them and say, enough, let's figure this out and quit squabbling because that's a little bit of a sidebar But because I've talked about how we paid down consumer debt significantly, how we paid down business debt significantly, but then listen to this on the government side of things. On September 30th, 2008, total U.S. public debt stood at $5.8 trillion. By the end of 2009, it had surpassed $7.8 trillion. So far this year, it was swollen by another additional 8%. Total U.S. public debt outstanding now exceeds $8.4 trillion. So we've gone from $5.8 trillion back in September 30th of 2008, well, before it really got ugly out there, to where now we've ballooned that up close to $3 million. We're not quite there yet, but we're getting there. We're at $2.6 with $8.4 trillion. So we've added $2.6 trillion of debt just in the last two years, or a year and a half. I mean, it's it, that's kind of scary if you think about that, because that's a lot of money. 45%. Yeah, that's a, that's a 45% increase. And, and like I said, I don't think that's completely fair to throw it at the feet of the Democrats. I just think it's more of a, a sign of the politicians, and I think it's just time that we say enough. And it's it's one of those things that I start losing sleep because I do start thinking, could this happen to us here in America. And, and you know, and I think there's a great statement that was made in this article. Let me give you a little bit of good news before I leave you all scared and you're, you're, you're starting to figure out we need to keep sharp things away from you. But it, the article does go on to say the U.S. does have advantages that many of the pigs lack. So a lot of these foreign countries do not have some of the benefits we have, which includes our economy is much more diversified. Um, also, the Treasury finances much of its debt domestically, making us less vulnerable to the whims of the foreign investors. And you, you know, when it talks about we finance a lot domestically, we also have the benefit currently. Now, I'm not saying this is going to last forever, but currently the U.S. dollar is still universal. Oil contracts, um, 
you know, other things are in U.S. dollars. And, and when these things happen, there's there's a lot of demand. That's why when you can go to Mexico and other countries, they'll gladly take $1 bills as tips or for payment for things just because the U.S. dollar is universal. Um, China has huge amounts of our debt. It's one of those things where we are blessed that we have a currency that we can print more money. And right now there's an appetite for people to buy our treasuries. And actually, you could see that with last week. What happened was um, it, it's very much the same as when in Japan collapsed many, you know, several years ago. The the treasury escalated because people have started looking at the U.S. dollar as probably the stablest of all the world currencies. And the same thing happened last week is that you saw the euro getting crushed um, and, and the dollar strengthened, even though we've got all these debt issues and everything else. A lot of people still say, and you hear Warren Buffett say, don't bet against America because we are, we have been known to be the most innovative, creative country that, that really has, and I think it has to do with us, the citizens. We're, we're an innovative group, but we also um, had the tenacity to kind of exceed everybody's expectations. So, you know, it's one of those things where the world is willing to bet with us. They, they want to be with America, I think, to a large degree, looking at our economy and the stability of it. But with that said, we still can't stick, continue these policies of sticking our hand in the sand, our head in the sand. I don't know why I said hand. That's oh. not going to do any good. But head in the sand, you know, like the ostrich, you know, that you see in the cartoons, because what's happening is that politicians pushing, pushing decisions off on the next group of elected leaders and letting the next generation think about these things. The time that that's that's kind of past. You can't do that anymore because now we've got Social Security, like I said, paying out more than it takes in. We've got to now fund this debt because now we've exceeded 90% of GDP, which is a, in, in economics is a big, big number. When you break 90%, that's a big deal because there, there's research out there that shows once you break 90%, you could actually lose some of your growth rate of the economy in general. So you, you kind of put a ball and chain on yourself on future growth when, when you break that 90% figure. And so we are over that number and, you know, and I, I know you want to talk about how the, there's a need for stimulus, but we also have to realize there's this great saying that's in this article from Sir John Templeton. It says, those who spend too much will eventually be owned by those who are thrifty. And that reminds me of that analogy Warren Buffett made. Um, I'm trying to remember the, t- the, the, the cartoon he made, but it was at um, Thriftsville. And- Thriftsville versus... Uh- Squandersville, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, I think it was Thriftville and Squandersville. It's a funny little cartoon. If you haven't seen the movie IOUSA, um, it has it in there, and it has the quotes from Warren Buffett, where it talks about basically our trade relationship with China. But that, that's here nor there is where they're essentially being very thrifty, buying and manufacturing, and we buy, 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 and borrow, 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 and then eventually they own all of us because they can go and buy our real estate and everything else. And after a while, we don't own anything because we're owned by those who are being thrifty. So that's one of those things that I want to kind of put out there to you guys that we've got to rethink the way we're looking at debt. And, and I think you, I wanted to kind of make the, the statement about the government because, you know, being on the local school board, I've seen how we've had to cut, and this is something that's going on across the country. We cut 13% of our budget out last year. It was planned to be 18%. But fortunately, ta- um, the tax base did not go down as much as anticipated. But we physically cut. I mean, we, we physically cut 13% out of the budget. I know the state has done the exact same thing. And I think, you know, 
it can we can do it on all levels because you know when money's rocking and rolling you know just like us personally we we get to spending we start spending some money because it's easy but when money gets tight you've got to make changes and that's the hard thing is we, we i think the states have figured out i think local governments have figured it out but because the federal government has the ability to print money they're kind of not listening to that phone call that phone's just ringing 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 and nobody's there picking it up because they, they just assume, hey, we've got this ability to print money. Why should we worry about all these things? Well, Greece is probably that um, amplifying of that phone ring. Because if we don't hurry up and answer the phone, this thing could really get away from us. And I, and I don't want to be that guy that worries about those things. But these, this is one of those things that I've been warning you listeners for many years about Social Security, Medicare, and some of the other things. Not that they're bad projects or, or bad programs that were put into place to protect our elderly or the people who are disabled or hurt, they're, they're actually very good. The problem kind of comes into just um, how do we pay for all this? And, and let's be realistic and be very upfront with each other on you know how the tax code's working, means testing certain things, where tax rates are, where um, we provide incentives with the tax code. You know, there, there's all kind of discussion points that I feel like as a country we've become so partisan that they don't get discussed anymore. And I'm hoping that we can all kind of come together and realize this is a big deal. Let's focus on getting something done because bigger is not always better when it comes to, to taking care of some of these things. And the government's not going to unfortunately be able to do everything to fix all these things. We're going to have to kind of make sure the market is fair and provides equal opportunities to everybody, but they're not going to be able to do everything in the future like maybe we had all hoped um, but these are some hard decisions we're all going to have to make. I did also want to provide you guys with, there was a, a great blog, and, I, and this is, I, I, we have a chance to go out and read some blogs from time to time. And this is actually over a year old now, but I think it's timeless in the information, and Bo found this. But the, the blog, Get Rich Slowly, and I've, I've talked about them in the past, and um, the, the good blog. And what he's done is he's gone out and he's, kind of found all these 25 useful financial rules of thumbs. And I'm going to get Bo to put a link on the website so you can go check these out too. And I just went and kind of highlighted the ones I thought were pretty interesting because if, if we are getting into a leaner time, a time where you need to rethink how you look at debt, then you probably want to look at your entire financial household and just make sure you're all right. That's why we did a show a few weeks ago called Financial, you know, all this healthcare discussion. We said it's time for a financial health checkup. And, you know, and then last week we did one on, you know, car shopping. So there's all these things that impact your day-to-day -day financial life. Let's go ahead and expand that a little further and give you some rules of thumbs that can be beneficial. Um, the first page had the standard rule of thumb is to save at least 10% of your income. Well, I've told you guys many, many times, and I liked how the article went on and kind of explained my thought point on this too, um, by, by quoting people like Liz, Liz Weston, who you know we've we've interviewed Liz in the Liz in the past, is that, that she says that that save ten percent for basics, fifteen percent for comfort, and twenty percent to escape, and that's where I kind of believe that ten percent is no longer good enough. Because pensions are kind of gone the way of dinosaurs. They're extinct. They're going away. You don't see many pensions out there anymore. Social Security, as I've already mentioned to you, is in some financial strain at the moment. So it's up to you personally to start carrying more of the weight. So that 10% probably worked in the past when you had a pension and then you had a stable Social Security sitting out there. 
But with everything that's going on in the economy right now, I really think you need to be thinking about getting that number up to 15%, if not even 20%. Um, Bo, did you have anything you wanted to add on this? Um, no, not on that. You go on the next one right well, now? Well, I, I was—I thought they had a unique one on the, since I talked about the emergency fund earlier. I did think it was kind of unique how they had um, a rule of thumb that was put. That was, he found this on Twitter from the how do you say that? Weakonomist. Uh, Weakonomist? Okay. Um, that your emergency reserve should be cover X months of expense where X is the current unemployment rate. That's an interesting way it to is. look at it because back when he wrote this back last year, the unemployment rate was at 8%. So he says, you know, you need to have eight months worth of emergency reserves. Well, now that the unemployment rate's at 9.9%, I mean, that would be 10 months worth of emergency reserves, which is I think pretty high. It is high, but in light of how things are going, probably not the craziest thing, especially because I know when we're dealing with our retired clients on the on asset management, we do try to keep over a year to a year and a half, maybe even two years, depending upon their risk tolerance of liquid investments available. So that's probably not the the worst case scenario. It, it depends on probably how old you are, what's your financial situation, how many children. You know, how close you are to retirement. There's a lot of things that you're going to have to take into account personally, but still kind of a unique way to look at things. It's different than the typical three to six months that you hear people talk about. So I thought that was kind of interesting because, you know, it wasn't too many years ago. The unemployment was 5%. So five months would have fit right into normal, you know, times when, you know, everybody's smiling and giving high fives about how great life is. And, you know, now that things are a little shaky, it does make sense to kind of kick it up a notch. Um, the next page, t- page two, I really didn't have a ton except for talking about home ownership. And Bo, I'll let you double back in case you see something in here that kind of stoked you, stroked you a little differently. But um, on home ownership, uh, uh, Get Rich Slowly had mentioned um, when getting a new mortgage, the balance should be less than two times your fam- family annual income. So if your family makes one hundred twenty grand per year, your mortgage should be $240,000 or less. And when lenders calculate how much house a borrower can afford, they use the debt-to-income ratio, a measure of how much your income goes towards debt. These lending limits have crept upward, and I've talked about that in previous shows too, is that just because your mortgage broker tells you you can afford a house doesn't mean that you should go and get that much debt. And um, the, the rule of thumb that's mentioned here, which I've actually seen in a lot of financial publications, I think it's a good one, is the more conservative. You don't want more than 28% of your gross income meaning grosses before taxes, deductions, and everything else, to go towards housing. So no more than 28% of your total income should go towards housing, and no more than 36% of your total income should go towards debt. And your mortgage is part of that debt calculation. So I thought those were, that was a, a pretty interesting thing. Anything you saw on that page too, Bo, that yeah. you want to double back on me? There were, there were two things. There were two things to come on. The first one, and this is just common sense, but I think a lot of people miss out on this. And I can think of, of a specific individual in our life who I know has done this. It's ba- and it's just to bank a raise, meaning that when you get a raise, that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to raise your lifestyle. It means that, um, you know, if you get a raise, don't go out and try to buy a swimming pool. Don't go out and buy a new <laughs> car. You know, meet all those goals. Hit that 20%. Hit that emergency reserves. Then start worrying about that stuff because what this, what this article warns again is lifestyle inflation. And that's not something we think about is if your lifestyle slowly creeps up, creeps up, creeps up, creeps up, and then something happens, you're stuck holding the bag trying to create this lifestyle that's not sustainable. Um, 
And then the other one, you know, it gave a few investing rules of thumb. I'm going to stay away from those. But one that I it did say that I do want to touch on, it says that you should invest no more than 10% of your total savings in your employer stock. Oh, that's a good point. I'd actually say 5%. And then that's kind of what we recommend because you want to think about diversification. All of your human capital, your paycheck is tied in with your employer. So it is not diversified if all of your human capital is invested in your employer, but then also your retirement capital is in your employer stock. So be wary of that. You know, I think it, it all goes back. A lot of these things boil down. Just hearing you talk about all that, Bo, it boils down to the thing that I think if we could just somehow get into elementary, middle, or high schools, deferred gratification. I mean, it, that the life would, you know, it's just like I gave that whole big, long discussion about the, the great generation, the, the Depression-era generation, and it really all boils down to deferred gratification. If you can live below your means, and that, that's that whole thing, we talk about getting a pay raise and living. I mean, so much of this, that's why when I say we go beyond common sense, but that, that part, I feel like we're backing up and staying with common sense because it just makes sense to you and me, I'm sure, or you and I, however, you know, I'm sure I'm slaughtering the, you know, that of the English, but I know my listeners completely understand that. And that, that's one of those things you, you, you kind of hit yourself and go, why can't everybody else figure this part out? Um, automobiles, you know, we just did a show on automobiles about two weeks ago. It says, after your home, your car is probably your biz- biggest expense. One common rule of thumb when purchasing a car is to buy used or to buy a new car and drive it for 10 years. Either one will save you big money. If you do both, you'll save even more, which I guess means buy a used car and drive it for 10 years. Here are a couple of guidelines to use when shopping for a vehicle. You know, and I thought this was this tied in directly because we gave our, t- our tips on how to shop for a car, but I'd never heard of this 24-10 rule of thumb for buying a car and it kind of makes sense it says you should pay at least 20 percent down finance for no more than four years and the payment should be less than 10 percent of your income and, and it says the first part of this rule which is the 20 percent payment uh, down payment says that this will prevent you from owing more than your car is worth and the last two parts prevent you from buying more car than you can afford so i think that's kind of an interesting way to look at it you know i've told you that I try to pay cars off within 36 months just because I like that, but I, I find it no problem to finance for four years, the 48-month period, um, because that's usually if they give you no difference in financing rates, meaning they offer you 1.9% at 36 months or 1.9% at four, four, 48 months or 60 months, you probably want to get take as long as you can and then just prepay it. You know, there's no prepayment penalties most of the times with these car payments, so you can get a little flexibility just in case you have an expensive Christmas or an April 15th where the tax man takes more than you planned on. Um, it's nice having a little bit of flexibility built into your payment schedules as well. Um, did you say see anything on those two categories, Bo, that you liked on the automobiles? Yeah, I, th- I think the automobiles were spot on. If you have more questions, check out our podcast from last week because that, that was kind of the whole gist of it. Um, retirement, I, I only highlighted a small section here. It says save for your retirement before you save for your child's college education. That sounds like a money guy echo there because we, we talk about that quite frequently. Uh, you, you know, Junior can go get a student loan. You can go get a retirement loan. And they haven't come to, to market with that product, and probably that would have been something we would have seen come to market if the bank reform had not started coming down the pipe because, believe me, they've gotten very creative with coming up with crazy products, it seems like, these last few years. And then miscellaneous, I thought these were kind of interesting. It said, according to Consumer Reports, when you're faced with a repair of an appliance, such as a television or refrigerator, you should buy a new one if the appliance is more than eight years old or if the repair would cost more than half of what it would to buy a replacement. 
Um, and that's so important, you know, it's, you know, it is, I, I feel bad. I had a TV go bad in my bedroom um, last year, about midway through the year. And it's one of these things where you, you feel weird throwing something like that away because of just the, you know, the environmental impact and everything else. But then you realize, holy cow, they want that much to repair it? Well, heck, I can go get an LCD TV for, you know, it, it, it truly is amazing. And that's why I, I can see where Consumer Reports comes up with that. Um, the last, it had um, other guidelines. I thought these were kind of important. It says, always take the employer matching your 401k. We talk about that. That's free money. Um, Bo, I've heard him use it on the phone when we're talking to the plan participants of 401ks that we help manage. Uh, is that, and because I've said this multiple times, is if I set up a table outside of your office or a cubicle wherever you work, and, it, and I said, look, by the way, well, John, Jane, when you leave office today, make sure you pick up that free bag of cash I laid out for you. It's got your name on it. You can't miss it. Um, pick it up on your way out. Not a one of you guys listening would walk outside that door without picking up that free bag of cash. I bet I could probably put a quarter outside your door to have heads facing up, and everyone listening to this show would probably pick up that quarter laying on the ground too right outside the door. But when it comes to matching, there's a lot of people, the, the numbers, the research shows it, that are leaving that free money out there for the employer and by not taking advantage of the match. It also goes on and says never touch your retirement savings, except for retirement. I mean, Bo and I, since we do deal with some 401ks, we our clients are great. I think our clients completely understand that on the wealth management side, on the investment management side. But because we do do some 401ks, we, we deal with all types. And it does break my heart when you hear people calling to pull out of their retirement plans for really not appropriate reasons. I mean, we, we've heard all types. You know, money's just a little tighter, which I can understand. But we've heard swimming pools, new cars, I mean, those type of things, they turn my stomach when I hear people calling and pulling. And you try to give advice, but at some point you just have to say, well, it's their money. Right. But, you know, it still turns your stomach when you hear those things. Never co-sign on a loan. You know, we deal with this sometimes with our financial planning and wealth management clients because they are the responsible ones, and we all have family members that we go, why are they doing this? But nonetheless, that still leads to family members or friends asking you to co-sign on a loan. Well, I would tell you the advice I always give people on that type of stuff, give a personal, you could give somebody some money and tell them it's a loan, but know when you deal with relatives, if you do any type of loan or anything like that, you're essentially giving them the money anyway. You can't expect to be paid because sometimes family members disappoint you that way, but never legally co-sign on a loan. And the reason is, is because, you know, you co-sign. So all you're saying is you pr pretty much guarantee the loan. But that individual is still going to be making the payments. Well, you're not getting monthly statements or anything, so you don't know whether that individual's making the payments or not. So, and a lot of times they don't. And guess whose credit gets wrecked because you were a nice guy, a friend, a family member. Your credit is the one that gets wrecked because you don't even know they're behind on that stuff until it's too late and the damage has been done. So, I would encourage you if you're going to if you if you want to help somebody out and you you have the means to do it. Uh, you know, just give them the money and tell them it's a loan and work out some private terms instead of actually getting a bank or a financial institution involved because those those are bad. How about this one, Brian? Don't mess with the IRS. Oh, yeah. That's what, you know, I tell people, I'm always amazed. I don't do a ton of tax preparation. I do very little of these. I mean, I do some just because I have some clients that I'm always, I'm probably going to be 86 years old still doing taxes for a few people just because um, 
it is what it is. But um, I, I, I will tell you the two people, I, two organizations I tell people do not mess with is I don't mess with the IRS and I don't mess with the SEC. I mean, this almost sounded like a money guy echo too, is because there's so many people that come to me and they say, hey, I think my swimming pool's deductible because I have a doctor that's willing to give me a no. I'm like, go for it, but I'm not, I wouldn't touch that tax return, you know, because I've seen you walking around perfectly able bodied. I would have a hard time, you know, explaining that. I always tell clients that I won't put any deduction on a tax return that I can't do that deduction. With, uh, I have to picture myself with the IRS agent sitting in the office with me because I've been through an IRS audit with clients. And, and you want to be on good ground. I mean, it's one thing to be gray and be aggressive and try to maximize, but it's another when you outright are doing things that are just straight up shady. And when I hear people deducting their um, you know, swimming pools, I had a neighbor the other day. Um, <laughs> I hope he doesn't listen. But um, <laughs> He pulls up and he has this brand new golf cart. I mean, this thing is tricked out. I mean, it's got radios on it. It's got seat belts. It's got rear view mirrors and all that. I mean, it, it is a good looking golf cart. And I was like, wow, that's a, that's a nice looking golf cart. And he goes, paid for by the government. And I was like, how did you do that? He goes, there's an electrical credit. And he named off some code section. Maybe it's legit. I don't know. But I have a hard time believing that that code section was put in place so um, people can go can out and my ride. go out and buy a pimped out golf cart to drive around the streets of a neighborhood. That just, I don't know, maybe it is, but, um, that, that, that seems a little on that aggressive, aggressive side that I would not feel very comfortable sitting across the, the, the table with the IRS agent, but I'm sure I'm probably gonna get an email from somebody saying, no, it's legit. You, you should have bought a golf cart last year, <laughs> but, um, I don't mess with the IRS. I think that's a great point. Um, you know, it's one thing you don't pay your power bill. All the, the worst thing you can do is cut off your power. You don't pay your IRS bill. They come take your stuff. There's a difference. Remember, those are, those are the guys with the guns. You know, the government you don't want to mess with. Um, it goes on and it says, in general, save an emergency fund first, pay off high interest debt second, and then begin investing at the same, down you, same time you pay down your remaining debt last. I, thought, I think that's a, probably a pretty good way to close it out with some, some good rules of thumb there. I thought that um, this um, from getrichslowly.org, you know, the Get Rich Slowly blog, really good blog if you want to go check it out. Um, a lot of you guys obviously listening to the Money Guy Show, you're up on technology, so this is right up your alley. I would also encourage you, please, please, please leave us some positive feedback on iTunes. We've gotten some good comments in the last few weeks, and that's put us back on the front page of the featured section of iTunes business podcast. That's so important to the Money Guy Show because – we don't have a marketing department. We don't have a big corporation out there pushing and, and pimping our product here. You are it. You are the marketing division of the Money Guy Show. Nobody's going to know about how good we are unless you tell them. So please, please, please leave us positive feedback on iTunes. If you listen to this, you like what you hear, take the, take the few minutes and do that for us. It means a lot to us and helps us out. I hope I hear from some of my NAPFA listeners. If you're going to be at NAPFA National up in Chicago next week, Give me a shout-out. You can write the show at Brian, B-R-I-A-N, at money-guy.com. Also, go check out our show notes at money-guy.com as well. Bo, anything you want to say before we close this show out? We'll talk to you in about two weeks. Thanks, guys. Y'all enjoy it, and hopefully we can keep the craziness out of the marketplace. Y'all watch it while we're out of the office next week. Talk to you soon. I'm your host, Brian Preston. The Money Guy podcast is hosted by Brian Preston, and Brian Preston is a partner with Preston & Cleveland Wealth Management. 
Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management is a registered investment advisory firm regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission in accordance and compliance with securities laws and regulations. Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management does not render or offer to render personalized investment or tax advice through the Money Guy podcast. The information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial, tax, investment, or legal advice. <laughs>